you know, yesterday we had some limited time, and so I didn't get a chance to share a little bit about my, my story, my background, just so that you uh, aren't just seeing a, a person up on stage, but you see that there's a, a family and context and story, and so I'll share a little bit about that right now. For some of you who may have heard me speak here at Mount Hermon, uh, I'm sure you've heard these stories, so please bear with me. Uh, I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and immigrated when I was six years old. Immigrated directly to San Francisco, so we grew up in the city. Uh, our hearts are still in San Francisco, and um, my parents and I, my, my father was born in what is now called North Korea. Uh, it's a really strange question when you ask him, where are you from? Because when he was a child, when he was born, there was only one country, uh, one Korea. And so uh, obviously a war and communism, all the complexities of hunger and poverty. Uh, he and my mom, they're, they're children of, of war, children of poverty. And so I'm really grateful for their history, their legacy, their faithfulness, their persistence. Uh, but... Christ came into our family lineage through my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother. And I don't know who these missionaries were, but many, many years ago, uh, these crazy Protestant missionaries got onto a boat, sailed for weeks, got onto that peninsula. They came not only with Scripture, God's Word, but they also came with the embodied Word. And what I mean by the embodied Word was that they came and, and made sure that people who were hungry were fed. They helped build the first schools. They helped build the first hospitals, the first universities, and the list goes on. Something about the power of the gospel having an impact on culture and society. But it was through one of those exchanges that my great-grandfather heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ from one of these crazy Protestant missionaries. Uh, and so he said yes to Jesus, comes home, shares the good news of Jesus with my great-grandmother. She says yes, and our whole household came to faith. And I share that because oftentimes when we're living in this moment right now, it's impossible to look generations beyond where we are. But if we remain faithful, Steve spoke about trusting the promises of God. Trust the promises of God for God is faithful. So fast forward, uh, I met my wife when I was a pastor in Korea. We've now been married for nearly 25 years. Uh, my wife is a marriage and family therapist. Uh, pause for dramatic effect. Uh, that means she wins every argument in our home. Notice only the women laugh, like I said. Uh, I don't know if you, there are therapists among us, but uh, you know, th therapists have a very important book as well. It's not obviously as important as the scriptures are to us as followers of Jesus, but they have this incredibly intimidating, thick, robust book called the DSM. And I think it stands for like Diagnostic Statistics Manual of, of uh, Illness or Mental Illness. And I find it very unfair, very unprofessional that when Minhee and I, we get into uh, an, an argument, she just grabs her DSM book. <laughs> and then as we're arguing, she'll open up her book and say, hold on, Eugene, just for a second. Uh, um... Oh, here 
it says, you're wrong. <laughs> and it ends the argument right there. Uh, and so maybe I should introduce my wife to you if I can. Uh, Minhee, she's right there in the front. So that's my wife, and there she is. She is 763 and zero in terms of fights with, Minhee, with, with myself. She has never lost a battle. Um, we have three children, and I'll just share this, and then we'll get into Scripture. Uh, if you know our children's names, you'll understand our theological convictions and worldview, because names are really important. You were given a name for a specific reason. For those who are parents, you gave names to your children with probably intent and purpose and vision. So our three children, they're now 22, 20, and 18, they have both Biblical names, but with pop culture references. And it's because we want our children to know the Word of God, to be light and salt as they engage culture and society. So for example, our eldest, her name is Jubilee. Jubilee from Leviticus, incredible promise of God. Every 50 years, God calls for a restoration of land, a restoration of unjust systems and forgiveness of debt. And for some of you who might be uh, comic fans, Jubilee is an X-Men character. Okay, wrong crowd, wrong crowd. Um, <laughs> Our second child, her name is Trinity. Trinity, the identity of God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then Trinity is a character from the film Matrix. A couple of you watching this bad R-rated movie. How dare you guys. And then lastly, um, you know, I know parents are not supposed to have favorites. I'm not saying he's my favorite. His name is my favorite. My son's name is Jedi, okay? And Jedi, obviously from Star Wars, but also from uh, Solomon's Hebrew name, Jedediah, which means the chosen one, the chosen beloved. And if you've read any of George Lucas's biography, you'll know that he was deeply influenced by his Judeo-Christian background. And there are some who believe that he chose Jedediah, Jedi, from that particular name. Now, whenever I share at like conferences or retreats that I was able to, to, to that, we were, that we named our son Jedi, inevitably like a few young men rush the stage, not in response to the altar call, but they want to ask the question, Pastor Eugene, how did you convince your wife to name your son Jedi? <laughs> Teach us, oh Yoda. <laughs> so if I can just briefly share, for any of you that might be in that moment where you're like, you know, having tug-of-war tug of battles with your spouse about how to name your, your, your child, whatever. So here it is. Uh, when we found out that we were having a son, I was so excited because we had two daughters, wanted to experience what it meant to be a father to a son. So eventually I went to my wife very early in the pregnancy and I said, Minhee, I love you. That's not the trick. Minhee, I love you. Um, I would like to name our son Jedi. And she looked at me and she said, no. <laughs> now, being a true Star Wars fan, as I am, I had to try it once. So I went to my wife and I said, we will name our son Jedi. <laughs> it didn't work. 
So we actually argued and fought about this because names are important. Eight months into her pregnancy, I have this revelation and enlightenment. So I went to my wife and I said, Min he, I am so sorry. You're the mother of this child. You're the one carrying this life in your womb. It is only fair and right and just. You should name our son. She was so happy. So I then said, here's your choice. It's Jedi or Frodo. One of these two. Man, I am so grateful that she chose Jedi. Because Frodo Cho, just by your responses, you would make fun of Frodo Cho. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Uh, we're going to go ahead and read the scripture, say a prayer, and dive into it. And I'm just grateful for how uh, the, the Holy Spirit is connecting uh, the sermons from this morning. And I pray that this is only a deepening and a reaching out of these roots that Steve shared about earlier. So let's first read scripture. The Gospel of Luke Chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, it may be a story that some or even many of you might be familiar with, but listen now for God's word. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed, only one, Mary has cho chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Let's pray together. And let me just give you just a moment to calm our hearts and minds and ask again for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you again. And we ask for your presence and for your power of the Holy Spirit to be with us. Meet us. Help us to have an encounter with you, your word, and our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Because it's possible that you may have heard or read this particular story, and if you haven't, it's okay. It's about a relationship, certainly about Jesus, but really about a relationship with two sisters, Mary and Martha, who appear on numerous stories throughout the Gospels. But I will say that when you read this passage there is a dangerous and a lazy way of interpreting and understanding this passage. 
And I want to simply acknowledge that dangerous way. And then after that, I want to give you a roadmap of how we're going to spend the next 30 or so minutes. The roadmap is this. I first want to share three things in praise of Martha. We'll then share three things identifying the dangers of busyness and seduction, which I believe happen to be the enemies of this intentionality of growing roots deep and out. And then lastly, I want to share with you three antidotes. There are many, but just time permitted, I want to share three things that we can employ on a daily basis within our lives. So now that I've given you a roadmap, let's begin. So what's the dangerous, lazy way of understanding this passage? The dangerous, lazy ways is when we oversimplify it and simply deduce that Martha is bad and Mary is good. Therefore, we as Christians should not be like Martha and only be like Mary. End of sermon. Let's get more donuts and on we go towards the day. And while there is an element of some small t truth in what I shared, I just don't think we're understanding the depth of what we can glean from this particular scripture. So let me then continue by just giving you three things in praise of Martha. Now, I might be a little biased because from a personality-wise, when I look at this story, my natural inclination is that I resonate more with Martha. Uh, my wife will tell you that I'm a, a recovering workaholic. I, I like to achieve things and do things. I have lists that I want to. And so I want to make sure that I defend any of you or some of you within this group that may be more inclined towards the Marthas and Marys. But the truth is that we need both of Mary and Martha in our lives. And the reality is, every single one of us, that there are both of these traits and personalities in our lives. But three things to praise Martha. Number one is that through her, we begin to acknowledge and understand that work in itself, being industrious in itself, is not the enemy of the gospel. To be diligent and to exercise our gifts and talents in itself is not unspiritual. In fact, I would contend with you that work, and I'm not necessarily talking exclusively about a 9 to 5 or 70, 80 hours a week work. I'm talking about the discipline of sharing gifts, talents, being industrious. That in itself is very spiritual. So as a pastor, as a theologian, when I'm listening and as part of my job right now as president of this organization called Bread for the World, one of the things that we monitor are unemployment numbers in our nation. And for me, it's not just about the economic factor. It's because I believe work adds and contributes to human flourishing. And so when unemployment numbers are high, I believe that in itself is antithetical to human flourishing. 
So work is very important. God gives us the invitation to work, to tend to the garden, to name animals and beasts and the likes, and the list goes on. The second thing in praise of Martha is that she begins to follow after Jesus. Even as a woman during that time, which was very murky about boundaries and such, she is out and about listening, being very attentive to Jesus Christ, but it's not just an admiration from afar. My concern about Christianity in our modern lens, particularly in Western Christianity, is that if we're not careful, we'll become fans of Jesus, admirers of Jesus, respecters of Jesus. We can do all of these things and still not follow Jesus. The question I would submit to you respectfully is, are we more in love with the idea of following Jesus? than actually following Jesus. And so what Martha does is that not only does she listen and and follow Jesus, but she actually invites Jesus into her own home. And you have to understand, more so in today's world, when you invite someone into your home, that's an expression, an invitation of wanting to say, I want to be lifelong friends, partners. I want to be lifelong relationship with you. That's the second thing. The third thing that we can say in praise of Martha is that one of the most significant words, I think, in terms of Christian hospitality comes from this passage and comes specifically about Martha, and it's the Greek word called diakonian. And from diakonian comes the word deaconess, or deacon, which literally means to serve, the diaconate. It's not just about serving, but we begin to see that there's a sense of a heart and hospitality behind these things. And we need in our church today a revival of hospitality and service. We have too many Christians who want guest privileges, even though you've been a Christian, a member of your church for years, and you still want guest privileges. We need hosts. People who are compelled by this theology of being a diaconate. And I'm not trying to sound abrasive. I'm just telling you right now that in the church today, I often wonder if we have about 10% of the church doing 90% of the service and volunteering. And that needs to be completely revolutionized and upside down. So let's now transition into identifying three temptations specifically addressing busyness and distraction. Again, if, I, if you're into titles, I would probably give this sermon the title, The Seduction of Busyness and Distraction. So let's identify three temptations within our culture and world. Here's number one. Number one You're not deceived. We're actually really, really, really busy. So it's not just a temptation, but it's actually a reality of our lives. All you would need to do is to do some simple research 
to understand that we live in a culture where we are over-scheduling our lives. Our margins become smaller and smaller, and as a result, it feels as if we're overwhelmed by the busyness of our schedules. I'm just going to share some statistics, some stories. Some of it you might disagree with. I'm just going to say it for the sake of giving you some context. So here it is. Uh, According to CNN, in a six-year study of 2,500 workers, so again, not expansive, but in a survey study of 2,500 workers, those who worked 11-hour days were two and a half times more likely to experience depression than those who worked eight-hour days. I'm not suggesting as you read these or listen to these statistics, it's possible that you're going to be thinking these all reek of privilege and that might be possible, but I think it's still important for us to understand some of the data and science between what happens to our mind, heart, soul when we're over busying our lives. The average American gets about two hours less sleep per night than recommended, which leads not just to two hours of less sleep, it leads to all kinds of other problems which make sense because our bodies, our minds, our souls, our emotions are all interconnected. It leads to, for example, obesity, diabetes, a lack of concentration, efficiency, and then even more depression. In the United States, according to this particular survey, 86% of men and 66.5% of women work more than 40 hours per week. Now again, next statistic, just take it for what it's worth. I'm not saying good or bad, I'm just giving you some information. In the 1960s, and again, one more thing, the reason why I'm sharing this is I want you to know how much culture has changed in the last five, six decades. In the 1960s, only 20% of women worked. Now please, I think it's great that women and sisters are exercising their gifts, talents, and treasures, but just to suggest how much things have shifted. Today, 70% of families have both adults working. So think about this for a second. You've got jobs, 40 plus hours, 40 plus hours, and then we have our chores, our responsibilities, we've got Costco runs, we've got a baby, and then two babies, and then three babies. Praise God, we have sleepless nights, we have kids becoming preteens, and then we've got teenagers, we've got sports after sports after sports. There's the debate team, there's the cheer squad, there's more sports. The kids who become teenagers want to learn to drive at the age of 15, and then you're trying to engage what it means to stay intimate in marriage while all of this is happening. You've got your parents, you've got grandparents, you've got dealing with neighbors and what it means to be a church, to be involved in small groups, and then you've got wear masks, do not wear masks, and then you realize you've been on mute on Zoom the entire time. And then on top of that, we've got all of this cultural push 
that we're all feeling in one way or the other, whether you watch the news, read the paper or not, where we feel this urgency or pressure to address all things politics and social injustice and police brutality and Black Lives Matter and Antifa, insurrection, impeachment, human sexuality, CRT, and after a while you're just like, whoa, this is way too much. A lot of my work engages these things, and there are just times I say, God, I, I, I can't handle this anymore. So what's the temptation? We live in one of the busiest times and certainly the noisiest time in human history, and it's not letting up. And you've got to make a decision that you don't have to show up every single thing that you're invited to, either directly or by pressure. And I've learned over the years, that especially now, there are two big decisions that you have to make. There's really three, and it's this. Number one, we have to say no to sinful and toxic things in our life. And I... I'm not even talking about like these conversations. In your life, if there are things that you know is not God-honoring, God-pleasing, it is good and God-honoring to say no to sinful and toxic things. Now, I suspect that for most of us, all of us, we get it, we understand it, but here's the second decision that we have to make, and this is tricky. Sometimes you have to say no to good things, to say yes to God things in your life. I, I hope that somehow registered in your, I can't tell if you're engaged or not, but for me, that's the hardest part of my decision-making process. I have a, a moral fabric that tells me that doing certain things are just not godly and I must reject it and know but it's the challenge of saying no to good things because I understand as a human being, I have a certain capacity and if I try to do all things, I'll actually end up doing zero things well. And then obviously the third decision is to say yes when you believe that God has called you to certain things. That's the first temptation. Here's the second temptation and it's quite interesting. The second temptation in a culture of busyness and distraction is that we have now married our identity and self-worth to busyness and distraction. In other words, whether we've articulated it or not, we live in a culture, and I think many of us have drank the Kool-Aid, that Busyness has now become a badge of worth and success. I'm more important because I'm busy. I'm more valuable because I'm busy. I'm more significant. I must matter more because I'm busy. So much that researchers are telling us that this is so becoming ingrained in our culture that many of us, some of us, are prone to lie about our busyness. We lie about it 
not that we're not busy, but we put it on amplified, storied expression because it makes us feel more significant and important. Let me just give you a quick example, an analogy. Not necessarily data or science, but 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, when you asked someone, how are you doing? I suspect that for some of us, the natural reflex answer was, I'm good. I'm fine. I found myself saying that all the time. Again, not healthy. I just said, I'm good, I'm fine. Now, I find myself without even thinking when someone says, how are you doing? My answers sometimes increasingly sound like this. I'm busy. Without even thinking, I, I'm busy. So in the last 40, 50 years in our country and around the world, you can see shifts of culture happening all around us. That's temptation number two. And here's temptation number three. It's this. It's the game of upward mobility and comparison. We live in a culture, and again, I'm not trying to make a theological analysis of capitalism or socialism. I, mean, I personally think that uh, benevolent, responsible capitalism in a broken world is the best system. But what I am saying is the danger of capitalism is that we don't quite know when to say enough is enough. And there's this constant upward mobility and comparison game. And the next thing you know, we're now comparing ourselves with other Kims and Cho's and Lee's and Jones and Smith's, Wong's, Patel's, Johansson's, and the list goes on. I'm trying to cover all of you. In fact, I still remember driving behind a car, a real, a real nice car, but with this little bumper sticker that says, the one with the most toys at the end wins. Now, we might not articulate that, especially in the church, but I sometimes wonder how much of that dangerous thinking has seduced us. This is the reason why I love what it says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 26. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Pastor and author Francis Chan simply says, Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Now, you might be saying, gosh, you know, are you calling us to a life of poverty? I'm not suggesting that. If the Holy Spirit convicts you of that, then more power to you. What I'm simply suggesting is this, that we have to acknowledge that everything that we own, including our most prized possessions, you have to understand at the end of the day, your most prized possessions, whether it's your phone, your cars, your, your toys, your motorcycles, your, whatever it might be, one day it's going to be in a landfill. One day. And I find it to be incredibly dangerous when somehow living in a culture of materialism we begin to get into a rut of thinking that an inanimate object has the capacity to speak worth and meaning to your soul. So let me explain this. I'm not against stuff. 
I like my stuff. I've got some stuff. Uh, as a fisherman, I've got lots of multiple fishing rods and lots of different lures. But think about when we look at a car. And there was a time 30 years ago when I would judge people by the car that they drove. And at this point, I don't really care what car you drive. If you drive, a, let's say, a Tesla, since that's in the news a lot, more power to you, it's great. A car, at the end of the day, gets you from point A to point B. Some cars are fancier, more expensive, or not. But the minute that we actually think that an inanimate object has the capacity to speak worth to the human soul, you begin to realize how it's so easy to fall into the temptation of the upward mobility. So, so let's dig in. What's the three remedies? And again, just because of time, I'm going to have to rush through these things. Three things that I would say are remedies, and there's numerous, but I want to just highlight three here. Here's the first one you might think is the most obvious answer, but let me explain to you from the passage why it's so important. Here's number Now, what do I mean by Jesus? You see, in this passage, what I find interesting is that Martha invites Jesus to her home, which is great, but after that, she has her own agenda, her own plan, her own Excel sheet. She has her own plans of going about what she has in mind for Jesus. Never in the story do we see an exchange when Jesus enters the home where Martha says, Jesus, how can I serve you? What do you want? What is your will. In other words, if you're like me, even with my good motivation and intention, there are times I'll wake up in the morning and I'll say, God, how can you be a part of my plans? How can you be a part of this amazing plan that I have for my life? Rather than us acknowledging that in God's goodness and grace that he sees us and acknowledges us and we get to be a part of what God is doing in this world. Friends, know this. God is at work in our world even today. And we get to be a part. And so part of this challenge here is that no matter what we do, we've got to learn to pray, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to read and meditate and chew and digest, consume God's word, and to be partnering and serving God's missio day, the mission of God. I'm not trying to diminish the importance of legacy, but I think in today's world, there's way too much emphasis on people's personal legacies. We live, and then we die, but God's mission still goes on. Uh, I say that because when you read the stories of like these Old Testament iconic heroes of faith, they live, they do what they can, they die, and the mission of God continues. Why? Because you matter, uh, I matter, we matter, but the missio day, the mission of God continues. So the first remedy is that keep Jesus the main thing. 
Keep Jesus at the center of it all. Look to people, walk alongside people, trust people. They are all imperfect, but trust people that keep pointing to Jesus. In their work, in their words, in their relationships, in their imperfections, they keep pointing others to Jesus Christ. I realize that for my wife and I, as we go through our, uh, our midlife, she, uh, we're both in our 50s now, we want to spend all the days of our life just pointing people to Jesus. And it's hard to do if we're not attentive and aware to Jesus. Here's the second thing as a, a remedy. The second thing here is rest and Sabbath. And I know this isn't rocket science, but you've got to understand the God who created you, the creator of the cosmos and the universe, this God who created you, who knows your innermost beings, who knows what human flourishing is all about, this God, this perfect God, this holy God saw that it would be good that you intentionally with vision rest and sabbath i hate to sound like a legalist because i know we're all busy but i'm telling you if you want to experience a spiritual formation that's resistant to the chaotic challenging conflict-laden times of our world you've got to understand the importance of rest and sabbath i've been in my new job for a year uh, I, I run a humanitarian organization called One Day's Wages with my wife. We still do that. But a year ago, assumed this role called Bread for the World. First week on the job. First day on the job. First day. First day on the job. Just wrote a very respectful tweet in response uh, to President Trump's what I consider to be dangerous rhetoric about amplifying Chinese virus because my wife and I and our kids were seeing the rise of anti-Asian racism long before it was ever reported in mainstream media. But man, I, I just couldn't, I, I was not prepared for how that went viral. New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, they're all constantly asking, uh, can you share more? Can you write more? Can you and it just goes on and on. The pushback that I received from so many people go back home. I can't repeat some of the stuff that people were saying. Next month, one of our board members gets into a little trouble with another member of Congress, two members of Congress. They get into this thing. It's a long story. I can't repeat it. The next thing you know, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, we want your report. How can you justify this? You're a misogynist. You're a page. And it was just so much. And I realized that during this time, that a day feels like a week in today's world. A week feels like a month. And if we choose to walk lock and step with the rhythms of the larger world, you're going to find yourself making mistakes that not only harm you, but also harm others as well. When we rest and when we Sabbath, is a reminder to us that God is God and we are not. So simple, but there are times I can get stuck in my own personal savior complex. 
where I just want to fix and change everything. Throughout scripture, we see how Jesus retreats to rest, Sabbath, and to be in sync with God the Father. Ultimately, for him to understand as we do that the questions that we should be asking, who am I? Who do I serve? And what am I about? Are the three questions I constantly ask myself. Here's the last thing, and I apologize for going a little long here. Here's the last thing. It's the word presence. And the reason why I think this might be one of the most X factors of this passage is that the problem with Martha is not her diaconate. It's not her diaconos. It's not her serving, but she is so worried and distracted by so many things amid her service. The word in Greek used for the word distracted in verse 40 is the word perispato. And it's an interesting word because I don't know if there is a nice English equivalent to perispato. The image is simply one who is pulled many directions. That's what perispato means. So I want you to imagine Martha in the kitchen, and now she is being pulled in so many directions, and as a result, her soul isn't able to respond to all of these things, and we begin to see some of our more, um, uh, let's say, sinful sides come out. Our angst, our anxiety, our fear, our anger, the antithesis of the fruits of the Spirit. What Jesus is praising in Mary is not her in, um, false adaptation of not willing to work. It's her presence. The gift of being present in a busy time where it's so tempting to be distracted I want you to realize one of the greatest antidotes of beautiful spiritual formation is for us to choose to be present wherever we are. One of my daughters, when she was a young child many years ago, I asked her, out of the spur of the moment, I asked our child, I said, hey, Trinity, um, um, I'm just really curious. Tell me... um, how I can be a better father. She was probably eight or nine. And I don't know, I just had that moment where I just wanted to have a good father-daughter conversation. And Trinity, without blinking an eye, says, I have three things. (laughs) That shocked me. As if she's been preparing her whole life to give the three things. And so she says, Dad, number one, you need to play more games with me and my sister and brother. And I was like, wow, this is really thoughtful. I go, okay, I get it, thank you. Um, I'm still going to crush you uh, like I always crush them in Monopoly. Pay your rent. (laughs) And she goes, number two, dad, you need to get off your phone. I'm just like, wow, it's getting hot in here. What's going on? 
I go, okay, uh, let's, let's, let's go on. Let's just finish this conversation. Three, she says, dad, three, this one really hurt. This one just hit me in the core. Dad, you need funnier jokes. <laughs> it's a true story. You're grounded. Go to your room now. And I think what she was really trying to say is, I need your presence. She didn't understand that concept, but what she was trying to explain is there's no greater gift than you. Man, I am right here with every single one of you, and I understand what it feels like to be pulled and distracted. I get it. So I am praying that God would give us wisdom to say no to good things so that we can say yes to the most important things. So God, thank you for this, again, great privilege. As we said yes to coming to this family camp, we pray that in the sermons, the teachings, the music, the activities, the laughter, the walks, the silence, help us to be present in all of these things. Speak to us, for we need you, Lord Jesus. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, God bless you, and you are dismissed. Have a great day.